Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Bryant Monte. I'm Nicole Franklin. And Bryant, I've been hanging out in my hometown of St. Louis lately and have been able to meet some hometown heroes. Wow. Well, there certainly seems to be a lot of hometown heroes in your city. We're meeting some really cool people, especially today. It's baseball day. We're a baseball town. We even have a Greater St. Louis Amateur Baseball Hall of Fame. And Mr. Nate Crump is here to tell us how he ended up being inducted into local baseball history and NASA history. Now there's indeed greatness among us today. Welcome, sir. Hi, Nate Crump. Mr. Crump asked that I call him Nate. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Hi, Nate. How are you doing? But doing okay, doing well. Yes, um, from what I understand, you just celebrated your 100th birthday a few months ago. Yes, in July, July 18. <laughs> July 18, so that would be July 18th, 1920, your birthday? 1920. And were nice. you born in St. Louis? No, I was born in Little Rock, but I came oh. to St. Louis uh, when I was about a year old. Okay, so we consider you a St. Louisan, so we have to ask, what high school did you go to? Well, I went to Sumner High School. Cool. Went to grade school, I went to Marshall, and then I went to Stowe Teacher College, and then went into the service. Well, I went to Lincoln first, mm -hmm. went to the service and came back to Lincoln and graduated with a degree in chemistry. So I've had specialized training in several places. <laughs> Absolutely. But, Can we start with uh, baseball in, in your youth? Right. Uh, in baseball, we played in the streets or on the park. And wherever we could play, we skated in the street and did all of that. And at the time, there were very few cars to come and disturb us because in the neighborhood that I lived in, which was a good neighborhood, but very few people had, people had cars. So- Which neighborhood was it? Were you on the north side? No, it was in the St. Louis side called The Ville. Oh, you were in The Ville, right? We've talked about The Ville on this show. <laughs> Here is one of our Ville heroes. This is terrific. Ville was sort of bordered by, at the time, Easton Avenue, which is Martin Luther King now, and then Vanderbilt to the east, and Taylor to the west, mm -hmm. and St. Louis Avenue uh, to the north. And within those confines, we all grew up, had a lot of things in the area, and uh, including various schools, Marshalls, Sumner, the Poro College, Anna Malone, and the uh, orphan home there. In fact, my dad worked at the Anna Malone home. Oh, wow. And so... But that's pretty much defining the build. But we grew up in that area and it was pretty much self-sufficient. So we just didn't go out for anything else and we lived our lives there. Pretty awesome. So um, tell us about Tandy Park. Well, Tandy Park is an area just in front of Sumner High School. And that was one of the big things on a Sunday in particular, where people gathered to watch the baseball games. And some of the players were originally from some of the Negro leagues, as well as some of the umpires. And, uh, but they had several teams, but it was not a professional league. And so, and basically, it was an amateur league, of course. But uh, when I was a kid, we used to go there and watch. And then I always said I would play there one day, and I did. Mm -hmm. And so, 
but it was a biggie, especially on Sunday. People from all around came and gathered. It wasn't an enclosed park. It was an open air area. Mm. And so, but it was still Tandy Park. And eventually they built a community center there at the one end of it. And that was very close to the orphan home and very close to Homer Phillips Hospital. So, oh, we've interviewed um, a woman who will be turning 105 soon. <laughs> she was a nurse at Homer G. Phillips Hospital. So we're meeting some very special people. Well, I mean, you look at baseball and you think about the times in which you played baseball. I mean, that was just like entertainment at its finest in some ways. Some people, that was their way of getting out and being together. How would you describe that time? I mean, when you when you played? Well, also when we played, it was a way of uh, knowing where we were, our parents, because we had a limited area to be in. And we would play basically all day, which then occupied our time and gave the parents a relief to <laughs> endure. Right. right. But at one time I lived right across the street from where they broke ground to build Homer Phillips Hospital. That mm. was at Whittier and St. Ferdinand. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, did you have aspirations as a, as a child to say, look, I'm gonna, you know, go for the pros? Pro baseball? Yes, sir. No, because at that time, there was no opportunity. In fact, when we went to Sportsman Park, we could sit in the center field bleachers or the right field pavilion. But the grandstand, we could not go. And even then, mm -hmm. our ladies were not recognized on latest day to come in free. They went there, they had to pay. Mm -hmm. But they still had to sit in the various sections. Now, when I was a kid, I'd sit in the grandstand on a thing, what they call a knothole game. And that was an award for good grades. And we were able to see the Browns play and also see the Cardinals play. Wow. But we we were located on the very top in the grandstand around third baseline. And it was an area where very few people were sitting. Hmm. But it wasn't totally come it was it was a mix. It was kids mm -hmm. who had good grades and so they were from various other schools, as well as our schools. Mm -hmm. What kind of grades did you get? <laughs> oh, I was a good student. I wasn't, I mean, it was a thing that you just got good grades because your parents expected you to get that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't have as many discipline problems or that sort of thing at the time. In fact, uh, a real big thing was saying something smart back to the teacher and you right. suffered all week because you expected that word to get home. <laughs> I had decent grades. And oh, that's awesome. I was not an A student. Oh, I'm shocked, actually. Well, <laughs> I, made A's in certain things, but I mean, in general, I knew some pretty smart guys. And uh, in fact, uh, it was one fellow in particular in high school who I consider responsible for my work in science because this guy was good in everything, mm. physics, chemistry, and all that. And so our teacher, 
he recognized something, I guess. And he used to pit me against this guy. And he'd tell me, his name was Hiram, said, Mr. Hiram had a very good test. And he'd just leave me and walk away with my mouth open. <laughs> and that inspired me to try to do better. And as a result, that was one subject that I did learn something about. Because without knowing it, I was really in competition with this fellow who later was responsible for the growth of Harris Stowe State Teachers College, Dr. Harm, George Harm. And so, uh, but other than that, I was a B student in math and all the rest of them. But I did all right. I didn't have any failures. I, I don't think I ever failed a class. Oh, I doubt it. You went on to become um, a, um, I would say, world-renowned scientist because of what an accomplishment we're going to talk about later. And I'm thinking also while you're talking about my mom pulling out my old um, report cards and seeing C's in conduct, she's shocked. I'm not shocked. Nobody on this call is shocked. But <laughs> we also have joined us um, today your son, Dr. Crump, who is, um, I'm not sure, are you a junior? It's Nathaniel, Dr. Nathaniel Crump. <laughs> I'm a junior, yes. You're a junior, uh -huh. yes. And you wanted to chime in on this. So. I just wanted to, my father is, uh, if you don't know him, he's very modest. And it, uh, uh, when he was at Lincoln University, he uh, uh, one of his chemistry teachers, because he majored in chemistry, and it uh, uh, was a guy by the name of Marty Taylor, who was who uh, uh, under him he learned his chemistry, and he uh, tells me a story of even though he got good grades on his test, uh, the grades weren't as good because. Dr. Taylor would lower them down because he would always tell him, your grades are not as good as if they would be if you were at Harvard. And oh. so I'm giving you grades that would be as if you were at Harvard or some other Ivy League school. So, and Marty Taylor was part of the Manhattan Project, if you don't know, and uh, with the atomic bomb. And later wow. when I uh, went to Howard, he was head of uh, mm -hmm. the Department of Chemistry. And I met him, he was a very brilliant guy. But I, I was sure not to get in his class because Marty Taylor flunked his wife in his class. I figured that was not a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, he was very good and uh, very thorough, but he felt that uh, we were not exposed to at Lincoln. And in this particular class, we had four students in the class. And uh, he would not give an A. And we we challenged him on that, and his reasoning was that we were not exposed to all the other things that some of those in the upper higher schools were exposed to. Mm -hmm. And so our argument was, yeah, but when we come out to work, we're all exposed to the same thing. And if we're handicapped from the beginning, we're handicapped all the way. Mm. And mm -hmm. so I don't know how we, if we ever changed this thinking, but that's the way he felt. But I thought he was a very excellent teacher. And uh, he left the same time I graduated to go to Howard and, and to the department there. And so. So just to define the transition, because you went back to baseball, you went to semi, you went semi pro in baseball. How old were you then? Oh, let's see. I guess this was really in the forties, five to fifty something. I still played baseball after I got married, and this guy was born. Oh wow! And uh, so. And the fifties, I would have been thirty. So you were playing so, baseball for a while, and I understand you did two exhibition games. You were in two exhibition games along with the Kansas City uh, Monarchs. 
So you were along the lines of those Negro baseball leaguers, but you weren't actually in the league, but you played with them. I was not in the league Mm -hmm. because uh, when I left school, Lincoln University, there was a doctor who was just opening up a laboratory. Mm -hmm. He was African-American and it was a special kind of laboratory, microanalysis. And I had just started working with him when I played these exhibition games with the Monarchs. And they had asked me to join the system, but I I declined because one of the new fellow was catching there. Mm -hmm. And he told me about the kind of life that was lived. uh, They played a lot of small towns and Money was not that good anyway, but it was the idea that we could not stay in the hotels and those kinds of things and places to eat. And so uh, for that reason, I didn't think it was worth the gamble, even though I loved it. And he knew I did too. And what position did you play, Nate? I played in the outfield. I played it mostly right field in most places. Wow, strong arm. (laughs) Must have been fast too. (laughs) That was um, the basis of that. Now, at the same time I played the exhibition game, uh, we played against a group of guys gotten up by Dizzy Dean, who was a big name in the majors. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, there was uh, Elston Howard, who was a youngster at the time and had gone to Bashan and they had asked him, they were scouting him and he did go away with them and he later went to the Yankees Hmm. and he was an outstanding player and I think uh, at the Yankees and so anybody who knows the Yankees at one time know Elston Howard when I played with the exhibition game, there were a couple of guys who were played center field and left field. I played right field. But these guys, Willard Brown and Hank Thompson, they were the third and fourth African-Americans to go to the major league. Mm-hmm. And they were hired by the Browns, which very few people would know that. Mm-hmm. But they didn't stay there long and were released back to the Monarchs. Mm-hmm. And that's how, when they came here to do exhibition game, that I got a chance to play with these guys. Now, Hank Thompson later came back and played with the New York Giants, third base. Willard Brown went to, I think, a Mexican league or something. But very few people know that Jackie Robinson, of course, was first. Mm -hmm. And then Larry Doby, over in the American League, was second to be hired. And just two or three weeks after Doby was signed, these two guys were signed with the Browns, Hank Thompson and Willard Brown. Hmm. And they made a combination whenever they were on the field. First time that two African-Americans were in the same game. Hmm. Uh, then if they played a team like exhibition or whatever with the Dodgers, then there were three, the first time they ever had that. So uh, it was it was something. Uh, it just so happened that uh, they had some kind of contract with the Kansas City Monarchs, but and if they kept them any longer, they would have had to pay the Monarchs a whole bunch of money. So they released them back to the Monarchs. Oh but very few people would know that St. Louis being a Southern town, so to speak, that they would be that far 
and the Cardinals were seven years behind in hiring their first black. So. Well, I know you didn't travel with the teams because of the conditions, and that's why you opted out, as you said. When you talk to your friends who did go through with touring and you know being in the leagues, what was the overall feeling? Was it worth it for them? Yeah, uh, and it would have been worth it for me if I had not just started into an interesting area in science. I mean, I would have loved to go on and play ball or something, mm -hmm. but it just so happened that this friend of mine told me the straight stuff. I, I had to make a choice between that and then in this new era. And so I thought that the new era would be the best because uh, at the time I was a little, little older in my mind to be trying to start out in baseball. I was in my late twenties or so. And uh, if I were gonna do something to move up, I, should have been doing it a long time ago. So it was a decision. It wasn't one that pulled out my hair or something. It was a relatively easy decision. And at the same time, uh, I was with his mother and I didn't know whether or not I would find somebody like that again. Oh. So uh, I, that was a deciding factor on, so I didn't know what might happen. So there, it wasn't a, a monumental decision or something. It's, there were some good things on both sides, but anyway, I, I didn't go away with them and uh, even though you had a 500 batting average, I, I read a 500 batting average. <laughs> well, that was a couple of years, <laughs> but uh, it 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 just wasn't the thing that I was driven to. I was more inclined to learn something about the science field and do some things in that. Yes, tell us about this lab uh, run by a black man. Well, he was. Uh, a graduate of Cornell, first part, Dr. Lincoln Duguid was his name. And he was a very good organic chemist. I actually he, know of him because my mother was one of his mentees. This is really small world, uh, right? <laughs> I keep hearing about him. He, yeah. taught, he taught at Stowe. Yes, that's where she went to school. While he was teaching, I was running the lab but uh, it was such an ideal thing to learn so much because originally when I first went to see him and this same Marty Taylor mm -hmm. that Lloyd brought up and I did, he had talked to this Dr. Duguid and told him about me and told him that he would send me down there to talk to him. Well, I did go down and talk to him and Dr. Duguid indicated that uh, for right now, I'm just building and I don't have, I can't hire you right now. Said, but you're welcome to come down and learn techniques and all of that. Said, but I just can't pay you. Mm. I said, well, that's a great deal. And which I did do for a pretty good while until he did, was able to hire me. But it's, it was different kind. Uh, it was dealing with very small amounts of material to do all kinds of analysis and it was good for many of the students in colleges who were doing research work and developing materials and wanted to prove that it was what they thought they had. We could do very much with a, a thimble full of material. We could do at least a half a dozen analysis. So that's where the micro part comes in. Mm -hmm. 
And so we did that and I uh, was with him about four years, I guess. Oh, so, but after that, then uh, the Urban League had started canvassing all of the companies in the St. Louis area to see if they would hire African-Americans. And because many of them did not at the time. And so I was asked to go out to a company out in Ferguson, Universal Match Company. Hmm. And they had just uh, installed a new armament division to do small government contracts. And so I interviewed out there. And of course, they interviewed me for about four hours, I guess. <laughs> I told them I didn't know four hours worth of anything. And so uh, then I asked them some questions, just exactly what they expected out of me. And how would I know what to do? And uh, they answered all that. And then my last question was, when can I start? Mm. And so I started right away and I worked there for about seven years. But uh, we developed a laboratory and did a lot of work, some for the Naval Ordnance Lab and uh, a few other things like that. Mm. I made pyrotechnics and cosmetics and bunch of other things. And then after that, uh, I spent about a year and a half in medical research from Washington U, assisting a team of doctors doing catheterization on kids up to 16. Mm. And I monitored machines to let them know where we were in there mm. through the catheters mm. and all. And so after a period of time there, I went out to McDonald. It was McDonald Aircraft at the time and in 1962. Mm -hmm. And I eventually stayed out there for to 87. But during the time I worked on many projects, a lot of the space programs from the Mercury to Gemini and Apollo and Space Lab and Shuttle and those plus other analytical work. Wow. I had three labs to supervise. Uh, let's see. Over that, we did a lot of, wrote a few papers here and there, but uh, we did some work on mostly the work that I'm proudest of was contamination work of con identifying and environments of the contamination freedom. Because one of the big things that uh, they were concerned about in the space program is that we don't contaminate the other planets. And if we get contaminated by the other planets, we'd like to be able to know what they are mm -hmm. and analyze that. One particular case, a guy had made an extra vehicle walk outside of the spacecraft. And when he came back in, his eyes were burning. And so uh, it was a crude system, but uh, they sent me the tub that the air flows through and we analyzed it, took a week or a week to do all that. And we found several things, citric acid and ammonia and a whole bunch of other things. And what we did finally get was a log from them. Turns out that one of the guys had spilled a bag of tang and it was <laughs> in weightlessness and floating in the air. And that's what was burning his eyes along with other systems that were, he was trying to relieve himself and missed the little target. Oh. And so that was- <laughs> Oh, gross. 
<laughs> ammonia in the urine of the kind of stuff. But what it did tell us was that it wasn't anything from the outside, which was still good news. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a valuable piece of information. And those were just some of the little pointers of it. Other than that, I, I mean, it was 20 some years that I worked out there and taught a few little classes and cleanliness and detection. Then afterwards, when I left, you know, uh, McDonald, I had contributed and worked with the United Way in arts and education as a loan executive from sponsored by McDonald. And then when Bowen took it over, they continued for a short while, but we were actually as a team to help during their drive, fund drive. And I had about 35 companies that I solicited from. Oh, wow. So this contamination thing, I'm going to go back to because I had heard about that a while ago and it didn't click until now how important that is. We can't contaminate other planets. We could rather, and we got to be very aware of that. And they in turn could contaminate us. So obviously I have to ask, are there, yeah, extra, yeah. Are there extraterrestrials out there or... <laughs> Did you see any <laughs> signs of life beyond our planet? Uh, <laughs> no, but I have a email, a cartoon where it shows one guy and it's it's a commercial for bean soup. But it what it well it's it's just a commercial that shows some big thing coming and the astronauts were hiding. And then, of course, this guy had been eating beans and stuff, and he made some noise, and the big monster came around. And so the answer is, don't eat beans if you're an astronaut. So, but, uh, overall, uh, there are there are a lot of things that we were never told mm-hmm. about what some of the uh, astronauts saw in terms of lights and various other things, which were not, we were not privileged to, but I'm sure there's some form out there, but we never found any, but the whole thing of the space program at the beginning was to know what we're taking out to the other planets Mm-hmm. and then try to know what we're bringing back. And so working with NASA, I'm reading that you are praised by the um, U.S. Congress for having a role in um, manufacturing mercury, the mercury capsule. Well, John Glenn went in. Mm-hmm. I went not in the manufacturing of it, no. Mm-hmm. But uh, I went there be because uh, at the tail end of the Mercury program, and they were getting ready to start the Gemini program. And because I had done some work there at uh, Universal Match, pyrotechnics, did some work on for the Naval Ordnance Lab and all that, then I went to McDonald to do some testing on the propellants that they were going to use mm-hmm. for the Gemini in terms of contamination and the closeness of materials with them and mm-hmm. the effect of these things on whatever is around it. But uh, not in the bill. I didn't go there. They, they had a contract to build the capsules and that sort of thing. So I didn't have a part in there, but I did do some things to testing. Now, what did happen for the Mercury and the Gemini, the heat shield 
material that they used was actually developed in our laboratory, our chemistry area. Mm. And so, but I didn't have a part in that. And so it was, it was a kind of a stuff. Now I did have some work done and had McDonald got something on the shuttle and that sort of thing where they used various tiles. We developed some tiles there, but as it turned out, Rockwell International and Lockheed tiles were used for the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but no, as I did get a citation from the president of NASA congratulating the work that we did there and uh, which I'm sure he sent to a lot of other people, you know, but nonetheless, we did do some good things. No, in looking at the, um, the story about hidden figures, um, you know, I met the uh, young lady that did the research and she said her dad worked at NASA and this was at the Black Journalist Conference. She was on a panel and she said her dad started sharing stories with her and she was surprised at the fact that um, these stories even existed, you know, about the women that did so many great things at NASA that was just never spoken about. So she made it her mission to go ahead and get testimonies uh, from people in Houston and, you know, different areas that um, she was familiar with. And that's how she wrote the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I think she was approached by the uh, movie company that said, hey, we want to make a movie out of this before it's even published into a book. Um, going back, I, I'm sure you saw the movie. I saw the movie. It's a beautiful movie. It is. And I just wanted to see what, what was your take on that part of history that many of us didn't know until that movie. Well, I had heard about them mm -hmm. to some degree, you know, but they were, this was, they did work long before the computers were available. Mm -hmm. And in much of their work, they did longhand, like in the math, mm -hmm. to, you know, they were actually doing that and with, not with any aid of the computers and that sort of thing. And so the, they were very instrumental, especially in the suborbital flights, Glenn's flights, some of the others. In fact, they, as I understand from the movie there, which I saw, he was about to be in trouble. Right. And they worked out an entry type of thing, but it's, it's a very, believable story mm -hmm. and a very likable movie for sure it was incredible <laughs> oh, <laughs> we skipped over the fact that um, we have two veterans on this call bryant and nate crump <laughs> so um let's go back to i guess decades uh, maybe it was two decades before you started with mcdonald douglas you were in the service right tell us what happened how did you get in well, I was, um, <laughs> I was in the enlisted reserve at Lincoln, mm. and then the Seventh Service Command came and took all of the men out of Lincoln except about 88 boys. Mm. And then I was to be deferred because I was doing work in chemistry and was supposed to later on go maybe to work for the government in some capacity after I graduated. But then Seventh Service overruled that. And so 10 of us were called who were in this program. We had to go to the service. So I was in several places, uh, MacDill Field and many others. I finally ended up in Wrightville. Never did have to go out of the country, fortunately. But I went through Texas and a few other places like that, Florida. And uh, eventually ended up in Ohio, Wrightville. 
then I came back to Lincoln to uh, get my degree. So I didn't do anything really exciting except. <laughs> well, so what was the training like? I mean, because you had to train in case you had to go to war, right? Well, yeah, the training was basic, as you say, basic training. And, <laughs> uh, but I did, I went to uh, airplane and engines school for course to help assemble some fixtures on the back of engines and then we'd do that and turn it over to the inspector who would go over it and find out if we made any mistakes on it before he passed it on to be put on the airplane. Mm -hmm. Then that was in Del Rio, Texas. We were not uh, free to go and freelance and go on our own. We were more of a adjunct to service groups. <laughs> so because of the times, I did play ball and played <laughs> football and uh, baseball. I got to ask you also, um, what was it like, you know, I mean, you, you, you growing up and you've seen a lot in, in your hundred years, uh, going back to say like your dad, I remember I read an article where you shared about what your dad would always teach you. And I, I know he passed when you were still young. 12. Uh, yeah. What, what are some of those lessons that stick with you today of what he shared? Well, with you? well my dad was a good guy. What, what he basically, I had two brothers older. And what he basically said and instilled in us was, these are bad times and in, in some sense what we're living in. But the thing for us to do is treat people like we want to be treated mm -hmm. and with respect and dignity. And he said, you do that, a lot of that stuff will come back to you as you grow up. And that's kind of the way that I've lived with my with that in mind. I didn't discuss that with too many people over the years. And, mm -hmm. But it's just the way that I grew up. My brothers were at the time when we were young. They worked at country clubs and a few other things like that. Mm -hmm. My oldest brother worked at shoe shine parlor, et cetera. But they wouldn't let me work. So they said, no, you're gonna, whatever it is, you stay in school. Wow. And so it was that kind of an influence that shaped my life for me. And he said, you know, when you do that, you'll be rewarded and things will come back to you, which they have. Like I always say, I've had a very blessed life and a term I borrowed from, I've been blessed by the best. <laughs> and that's what I tried without actually saying it to my son there. <laughs> but by his mother and my example, he got what we were talking about. And uh, I'm very proud of him. And he's been a good guy. And he's done very well. A lot of it on his own guidance and all. And uh, the only thing that I told him when we took him to Howard is that he's now living while you're here at Howard. You're making your own life and uh, you've lived very well. And if you wanna keep on living that way, then you better do well here at Howard. And he did do well and came out and he has had a great life. And so I'm 
real happy with that, and his mother was too. And we lost her about 18 years ago, pretty much. Mm. And so, uh, but she's still been with us all along. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. Uh, can you tell us how you met your wife? Yeah, uh, she was a Lincolnite while I was in the service and she graduated. And then she was teaching out in Webster Groves. And then she brought a group of young ladies to Lincoln to show them college life. You know, our people didn't know a whole lot about that. And so this was a good experience for them to see what it was. And so a frat brother of mine introduced me to her. And then from that point on, we talked and corresponded. When I came out, uh, then we were together and then we got married in 50, 1950. Hmm. So uh, we had about 53 years, I guess, which was pretty good. Wonderful. When you talk to young people, because I'm sure they always ask you, what is your secret to success and longevity? <laughs> what do you tell them? What do you tell young people, which is most most of us, um, especially the ones that are coming up? What advice do you give them? Well, we got a bunch of young people here serving, and they they are actually very nice learning and in school. And I talked to several of them to find out how they are doing in school and making some suggestions to them uh, on some things and telling them about the opportunities that are out there for them if they apply themselves. So I do a little bit of that. Uh, during my time there at the McDonald, I, did a lot of that of going to the various high schools, talking to the young people and the opportunities that are available and to prepare for them. When I was early in McDonald in the 60s, there was a program called Plans for Progress. And it was run by Vice President Humphrey and Secretary of Labor. And so uh, they called 65 of us from all over the country, African Americans, to come and participate in this program. And the big thing there was uh, we were to go out to the various predominantly Black schools or wherever they were and let them know according to Vice President Humphrey, that everything is changing, the world is changing, the world of work is changing. So to prepare for it, see, in one time, the only thing that you might go in abundance would be teacher, preacher, lawyer, mm -hmm. if you could. And, uh, but things were opening up in many areas. And so that was one of the things that we did in this Plans for Progress talk to the kids. And this was a program that really was a forerunner to the Affirmative Action Program, really. It involved various companies to try to look at their hiring practices and be better. But having seen all that, I check with young people and try to find out what they're doing and maybe find a little place I could slip in a little advice here and there. And there are some things about scholarships and everything like that that suggest that they go to the parents and tell them to start applying for those kinds of things now 
to try to get them in school and not be set with a whole bunch of money if, where they, if they can get grants or loans. So there are a lot of little things like that that I talk to young people about whenever I get the opportunity. I'm wondering if we have Nate Crump on the phone and uh, his son, Dr. Crump. Uh, Dr. Crump, in listening uh, to your dad talk, uh, does all of this ring familiar, especially the advice and you know he was giving you and, and how he raised you the way he expected his dad to have him come up as well with his philosophies? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm very proud of my father because I wouldn't have been uh, a social professor at University of Chicago. There are very few minorities at the University of Chicago. And so I kind of felt like I was an unwanted uh, role model and I tried to live up to that. Uh, but it, it always in the back of my mind, I, I, I kind of took from the tremendous advice that my father gave me. Uh, some most wanted and some unwanted. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but he, as you can tell from the way he uh, has talked today, he's full of wise information and sage. And so that's hopefully followed down. So very, very proud of him. And I still talk to him every day and get advice from him. So, <laughs> so, so, so Mr. Crump, what, what is it that you have a special diet? I mean, you're to live to your age or what do you, what, and you look amazing. Your, uh, <laughs> no. And you're so sharp. <laughs> well, you still work, work out. I know I saw you, you still golf, right? Or no, no, not my legs kind of gave out a bit. Okay. But I did golf when I was 99. Okay. I, one of the things I, I did that uh, when I was in my 70s, I got three holes in one. Oh, wow. Awesome. Three different courses. But uh, was it a three par, four par? Three par. Three par, okay. Yeah. And, uh, but the thing is, yeah, I do work out a little bit. Yeah. I try to work out. I, I got two days that I work out and sometimes I had a third day, wow. but I'm sore and stiff. So though I'm not, I'm putting on a good front. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you eating? <laughs> well, two mites. That's what's happening <laughs> You look now, very well yes. taken care of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just so excited that we met and um, you're just such a testament to segregation, not getting the best of us. I mean, you know, you wanted to play baseball, you did with some of the best. I mean, come on, you know, the Negro Leaguers you ran into and the semi-pro guys you ran into, the best. We have to admit it. <laughs> and then working mm -hmm. in science all the way to working on NASA projects, the best. I mean, do you, just in thinking about your life, was it extra pressure to be the best at what you did or it just came natural. I mean, I was told I had uh, to be yeah. the best, so <laughs> that was pressure. <laughs> never really tried. See, just like uh, I did all these things, and there are some dads who push that off on their son, and I never did that. I never kept a scrapbook and all that, let him make his own choices. Mm -hmm. And when he was very young, I was satisfied that he could do these things if he wanted to. Dr. Crump. Sure. One of the things my father used to always tell me, and I, I, I didn't say that, but uh, he would always tell me that well, my mother was a teacher. And so, so he said, you, you've got brains and, you, uh, and there's no reason why you can't do as well, if not better than anyone else. And... Uh, 
and from grade school on, uh, if I didn't have an A or a B, uh, he would not be happy. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then when I had A's and B's, he was not happy with the B's. And uh, so, but you know, it what it what it did instill in me uh, when I continued to go up uh, as as we continue to go up there, less and less uh, African Americans in the pile. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, instead of being confrontational, I just tried to. Uh, do things by example, and uh, uh, and that really has gotten me through it. Uh, when I went to University City, and Dad, I, I, you may not remember this, uh, and I got good grades, uh, and they pulled me out of school one time, uh, the classroom, and gave me an IQ test because they couldn't understand why I was getting good grades, mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, and I came home and I told my folks, I said, well, they said, what do you do? I said, well, I had an IQ test today. And they said, well, why? I said, because they told me they couldn't understand why I was getting the grades I was getting. And I thought it was fine. And I, I think my parents were a little uh, disturbed by that. But that, and then uh, I ran across a, uh, a trigonometry calculus teacher in University City who uh, I was not doing as well as my dad thought I should do. And I went back home and I told my parents, I said, well, this guy, he just doesn't give me much attention or he's just not very nice to me and, and uh, whatever it was. And uh, uh, I think it's the only time that my father took off work from uh, uh, McDonnell Douglas, I think it is, but he took off work and I thought, this is unbelievable. I'm going to get killed when I go back to school. <laughs> and he went there and, and went to the principal and they called in the teacher and, and had a big powwow. And, uh, uh, but this teacher was so nice to me afterwards and made sure that I, he was as nice to me as anybody else. Let's put it that way. Sure. So, uh, uh, and of course I ended up, getting a good grade out of the class, but it, it kind of taught me at that time, because that, well, you know what, maybe there is a little bias in the world, you know, and, uh, uh, and if, if I get a chance to do the same thing anyone else does, then I can do that, and that's how, that's, I've instilled that in people who have come to me, even, you would not think so, or maybe you would, in the medical field, in an academic field, um, uh, African-American students and residents uh, <clears throat> sometimes have a hard way to go. Yeah. And I can see that. And uh, I just never thought that anybody would look to me as, as a role model. And, uh, but they would, and I would give them advice and teach them. And I finally realized, I said, if I don't teach people and go a little extra mile uh, to teach them, no one else will do that. And uh, so that's what I tried to do. But I got all that from my dad, who, who uh, would get very <clears throat> perturbed if I got a BRC. So, uh, so not from confronting them, and uh, but from setting an example. So, so that's why I said I'm I'm proud of him. Okay. Oh, well, I'm so happy to meet both of you, and this has been such a special afternoon. Thank you so much. Yes, it has. Well, I'm glad to meet you guys. Yeah. And, uh, it's been interesting and very good. <laughs> good luck on whatever your endeavor is, both of you. Thank you so much. Wow, that was amazing, wasn't it? It was so cool. <laughs> I loved meeting Nate Crump. I mean, I heard about him on um, local radio in St. Louis, and I'm like, wait a minute, perfect for our podcast. To be 100 years old, I mean, that's just amazing in itself. You know, plus he's so sharp. I mean, the the stories and you know, just the way he engaged with us, I think that's that's amazing. He's a chemist and a right. baseball player <laughs> and a veteran. <laughs> <laughs> what else could he throw at us? Oh my gosh. <laughs> but right. I thought the one thing that was so cool was when he was on that four hour interview and said his final question was, when can I start? <laughs> I'm like, right. I love that. 
Yeah. I guess we need to ask that more often. Right? We definitely do. <laughs> I want to thank everybody for joining us for that incredible interview with Nate Crump and his son joining us was adorable. Dr. Crump. I mean, this is, you know, no young chicken. I mean, he is <laughs> a very accomplished yeah. now retired uh, doctor in Chicago. That was so special. So we've taken care of the Midwest today and I'm positive that everyone out there in the land of listeners want to keep up with Mr. Nate. He's incredible. So join us on our website, everybody, beforeyougo.tv. Again, that's beforeyougo.tv and we'll keep you updated. And while you're at our website, beforeyougo.tv, you can connect with us. So our guests love fan mail as well. So don't be shy. Maybe share with them a good story of your own. We also want you to know if you feel moved to offer a donation to our program, we will share your generosity with those who share their compelling stories. We know you have ideas of people in your circles who are storytellers too, so we want to meet them. Drop us a line at beforeyougo.tv and maybe they'll be on our podcast. And before we go, we want to remind everyone that stories like these are sometimes just a phone call away. Might be time to pick up the phone. There's no time like the present. What a, what gift. a gift. Before You Go is an Epiphany Inc. production. Hear more from Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte at beforeyougo.tv.